Welcome to the Let's Talk podcast, Life in Lockdown, from the University of Edinburgh and Edinburgh Students Association, keeping us together and sharing experiences in this extraordinary period of social distancing. I'm Harriet Harris, the University Chaplain, and today I'm talking to Professor Liz Grant, Director of the Global Health Academy and Co-Director of the Global Compassion Initiative at the University of Edinburgh. Liz gives us a global perspective on the pandemic, its effects on lower income countries and the need for carers and families to quickly be trained in palliative or end of life care because there isn't time or ways to bring in the specialised palliative care teams. She also talks about her work with the World Health Organisation, making compassion the bedrock of our response to COVID-19 and the prospect of changing our language from isolating to cocooning the vulnerable. Liz is also working with faith leaders in Religions for Peace, and she envisions with them a society that will emerge more united from this pandemic, more aware of the power of faith and of nature in making us globally well. Liz, thanks ever so much for making the time to have this conversation today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Harriet. So I'm Liz Grant. I'm one of the professors at the university and I have an assistant principal role for global health. And I also direct our Global Health Academy and I'm a co-director of um, a global compassionate initiative that we have across the university as well. So thanks ever so much, Liz. And with all of those hats, I mean, it's a really global outlook and global health um expertise that you have and i just wonder with this global pandemic what uh, contributions you're being asked to make at the moment to the global conversation as we know the pandemic is extraordinary and it's hard to believe the the, the shift from that original cluster of pneumonia cases that were reported in wuhan at on the 29th of december and now Mm. It's really extraordinary to think that, that the world has, has changed so much. Um, so the things that we're being asked as a, a global community here at the university, um, particularly in global health, um, are multiple. Some are around looking at really understanding what this virus is because we don't have a full picture of the virus. Um, and there's ex- teams working across the university to understand its its f- formation, to understand its spread, to understand the um, mutations are uh, likely. Um, and alongside that, there's a lot of work around the public health um, implications of how each country adopts um, mitigation strategies, adopts containment, moves forward with trying to stop the virus. The The particular things that I've been asked um, related to the my own research work have been in three areas. One around palliative care. Um, tragically, you know, this disease kills. And even though the numbers um, across the world are very different in different um, countries, and particularly in different continents. And and we can talk about the impact in Africa compared to the impact in Europe or in the States. Mm. The the disease is killing people, 
and it's killing people very rapidly when they become ill um, with COVID and when they move into that um, significant illness stage. Um, the time between that very ill stage and, and death is, is remarkably short. Um, palliative care is the care for people who are living with life-limiting illness and living towards the end of their, their lives. Um, and much of the work I've been doing with the World Hospice and Palliative Care Associations and International Palliative Care Networks has been to um, help develop uh, guidelines really rapidly for many countries in addressing the huge issue of how do we ensure enough people are trained to support um, those who have palliative care needs. Um, families who are suddenly dealing with the fact that their relative is very ill and likely to die. Families who are dealing with the fact their relative has died and they haven't had a chance to be with them or say goodbye properly. Um, and also staff, um, health worker staff, um, who are facing numerous people very, very ill and dying and having to deliver palliative care and care for people using a palliative care approach when their um, training has not been palliative care orientated. So that's that's one of the, the, the ways I've been working uh, with colleagues across the, the globe around this pandemic. And then the other two are around thinking about compassion and the whole um, bedrock of compassion as we approach COVID, this COVID pandemic. And the third has been looking at the way that faith communities um, support and deliver and develop new ways of comfort and care for people. These, these are um, extremely uh, rich and deep areas, all of them, and it's amazing that you are able to work across all three. So let's take one at a time and dig a little bit more into the palliative care work, because as you were suggesting, palliative care is often something delivered over a stretch of time. Um, it can be months, it can be days, but it's not usually um, uh, rapid on, on the vast scale that we're seeing at the moment. Is that right? That's you know, right. that you're having to do, suddenly deliver palliative care with within um, a very short time span between a person becoming critically ill and dying. Yeah. Um, so, and you're saying that also in a lot of contexts, you're taking the global context. It's actually families that you, that are being trained to support those who are dying. Is that right? Both families, yes, and also health workers who. Um, haven't as a, a, a in their role before been dealing with palliative care issues they may um, have been working in uh, respiratory disease or working in um, accident and emergency or working in um, nursing care but they've been able to call on palliative care team workers um, normally to provide the palliative care work as as if um, as people move into a more palliative stage. Um, this was before the pandemic. Now there's no time um, no. for that. No. Um, I, I, I mean, across the globe, and, and particularly in 
well, actually across all countries, but we've had you know cases um, from New York described of how staff have just been um, absolutely shattered and exhausted and unable to manage the number of palliative care needs that are coming through um, because there's there's just no one else, no one there able to to um, be there with the family, be there with the with the nursing staff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've been hearing about that from um, another doctor on the Isle of Wight, actually, talking about how they are having to step up to be the accompaniers at the time of death because uh, families aren't able to come in. I know that's slightly changing now in some circumstances, but families aren't able to, to, to come in onto the wards. Uh, chaplains aren't able to come in. As you say, there's not always the time to call upon the other medical colleagues or healthcare trained colleagues either. So the doctors who are, who are doing the intense caring work, the doctors and nurses doing the intense caring work, are also being the people to be ringing up the families and holding the hands at the time of death. So it's a huge amount of uh, extra uh, emotional and, and physical labour, isn't it, As uh, uh, on top of the, the, the fundamental care, medical care. Yes, looking yes, after the all-round person in ways that that have have, have usually been more of a team, um, more of a team effort with people coming in with different aspects of expertise. So, what is the training that you are? What are the fundamental bits of, of training that uh, that you're wanting to pass on to people suddenly finding themselves needing to give palliative support? Yeah. That's a, a really important question, um, and they, I suppose they can be divided into thinking about um, uh, preparation, um, speaking with patients uh, about their expectations, um, offering patients time to to talk about their fears, um, to talk about getting ready to die, and what that feels mm. like. Um, to talk about uh, how do they how do they want to be remembered um wow. with their in their families with their friends to talk about what needs to be passed on what messages how do we how how can someone who's not able to see his the wider family network um supporting that person to be able to understand and 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 um, share what they would like someone in, by proxy to share then uh, working with the the teams around basic um effectively palliative care um symptom management uh, wow. uh um around with 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 protocols and then working with teams uh, um around um understanding the um uh, grief and grieving both wow. for the families and for themselves as they experience not just one death or two deaths but for some a number of deaths over the course of a day and how that um shocks our very system because health workers are are trained to heal that's part of our part of the health worker um ambition really that value and yet Healing, dying well is part of the the greater healing process. So it's helping to understand what that looks like. And this is very 
I think it's very significant in a pandemic when health systems are being judged by um judged effectively negatively by the number of people who die because the the whole push of every strategy within our health systems at the minute is to um try and stop that number uh, exponential rise of deaths um in palliative care the core of palliative care is to say that death is not a failure but mm. the natural order of life obviously yeah. early preventable death is a failure but we all we all will die and palliative care is to enable everyone to die well and to die in the way that they choose choose best to die so we've got yeah. this double um a sort of dimension going on where on the one hand our health systems are trying desperately all the health workers are trying desperately to stop death and that having uh, and their marker of success or failure is seen as stopping death and on the other hand there's this um absolutely essential message of trying to ensure that those who are dying receive active and intentional care that people are not left to die without accompaniment or support and that their suffering is eased and it's not seen as a failure of the health system because for families going forward that's a, a tragic um, way to carry someone's death forward um, so it it, mm-hmm. it it is it's trying to manage those two things together, and then there's a third thing that comes in, and that is that the mitigation strategies for uh, and the containment strategies, the lockdown, the quarantine, the the way that the health systems are trying to manage COVID, is actually meaning that those who ha- have palliative care needs, those who had palliative care needs before the pandemic started. They're actually in a in a very difficult position. They're vulnerable. They're fragile. Many of them need to be shielded, but there's concern that there's they aren't able to access the very services that they need at this time, and that's emerging more and more because of the um, uh, you know because services and, and particularly in in many lower income countries, health services are are normal health services are not running as normal. We're not seeing clinics open because things are being moved. People are frightened to go to clinics in case they get COVID. Um, there's a lack of transport in because of a number of the um, uh, lockdowns that have happened in big cities. There's been incidents of um, where curfew has been but where the curfew means that no one can travel and yet people do need to, to travel to get healthcare and they have been refused to travel or there's no um no matatus, no buses they can travel on. They can't because of lockdown there's been no way of earning that daily money that people many people mm. depend on. Um so there's no money in the family to actually pay for transport. So there's a number of unintended consequences from the mitigation strategies that ha- are having huge negative effect impact on those with palliative care needs as well. So that's also into this equation of how to develop and deliver better services. Yes. Uh, and it complicated on so many levels, isn't it? So um the we we are beginning to learn more and more about the um the sort of collateral damage if you like of mm. uh the lockdown and the mitigation strategies on those with other health 
conditions and, and, and those reluctant to go to doctors or those, as you say, unable to go to. And I imagine that when we when we start looking at, at the numbers of those who are dying at the moment and add in all those who are dying, not from COVID, but from um, the societal changes because of COVID, uh, that the picture is going to look, as you say, um, even more tragic. Yes. You were also saying about the markers of success. So one of the things that would be really helpful as we come out of this pandemic um, would be if uh, a significant mark of of success was understood to be how well people have died. So as you say that healing and health are about wholeness, it means the same thing, health and wholeness, etymologically. And if if people have... um, felt that the aspects of their lives have been able to be integrated well at the end and that they've been able to die comfortably and peaceably, uh, saying what they feel they need to say, letting go of what they need to let go of, then that has been a good death. And if health services are able to facilitate that, health services are doing their job of, of, of providing health. Yes, and we've had some um, I mean, beautiful stories um, of how health workers have just sat at the end with with people, stories of how health workers have um, used their iPads to um, allow their um, uh, someone to just have those have some final words, and then um, with with their relatives when they haven't been able to draw them together, fa- you know, quickly. And I've been very touched by. Um, you know the stories of health workers who who have who've sat and looked into people's eyes, mm. j- just recognizing that they couldn't they couldn't hug or they couldn't um, really touch or if, and with the with the PPE there's there, there's such a the, the personal protection equipment there's such a barrier in some ways but health workers have described just just being with the person who's dying just just waiting. And recognizing that waiting, that their presence with with the person um, who's dying is is so important because the presence, um, even without touch, it, it is is creating a connection, and it's yeah. saying that we're it, with you. Yeah, and presence is felt, isn't it? Even without touch, presence is something that you can feel. Yes, um, yes, and I think like the know, attentiveness of somebody, one person to another. I, I think that's such a, a valuable thing to say, Harriet, that presence is something that you can feel even without touch because yeah. touch is really important and we, we know um, in healthcare touch is important. But I think this pandemic is showing us that there are multiple ways of, of touching the other, touching each other, of being of being together without being physically present, but being intentionally present and reaching out um to 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 share uh, to share that presence without the physical touching yeah yeah and this is a perfect place to bring in um your insights of compassion because what you're describing at the moment around palliative care is is compassion in action is to, the the attentiveness and the actions to relieve suffering so could you say a bit more about the um, the work you're doing with with the World Health Organization 
and elsewhere um, to enable compassion to really provide the foundations for how we are living at the moment. Okay. And um, in, in the, the background of this is that um, the World Health Organization does recognize that compassion is at the, at the very heart of health. And it's been one of the extraordinary things to see um, Dr. Tedros, the Director General, often just tweeting out very simple messages, actually one word messages, hope, trust, honesty, compassion. And saying, Dr. Tedros has said, compassion is is one of the the most significant and the greatest healing medicines we have, um, and the, the, um, the WHO have been working with um, a number of organisations uh, across the globe with the uh, Task Force for Global Health and the CDC Atlanta as well in thinking what does compassion look like in global health. So as part of those conversations, I've been um, doing two things. One, thinking about more broadly compassion in the context of the sustainable development goals. And then more specifically, compassion within the palliative care um, arena. And I think three um, thoughts I want to, maybe I can share around that is that um, all of the mitigation strategies and all the way we manage this pandemic are about separation. We've got to create space or about creating, um, keep, keeping people apart in order so that the virus doesn't move. Because the one thing you can say about this virus is it jumps. It's jumped from um, an animal reservoir into humans. That was the very start. And then it, it it's transmitted through one human to another. It's transmitted by the way that we're um, we're, we're being together um, through particles or through um, uh, droplets or um, through uh, uh, if it's on surf if the virus is on surfaces that we and we're touching those. So separation is absolutely critical. And the thing about separation is separation. There's a space within separation. Separation mm. is about a space between us and the other, mm. and we can do different things with that space and one of the I think one of the the tragedies that we're we're seeing is that that space is being filled by fear and anxiety and anger we also know the space is being filled actually by shame by xenophobia um by blame as I think as as global health practitioners there's something about thinking, how do we ensure that the space that's being filled at the minute um, with these um, negative um, things can be filled with compassion? Um, we need to identify what's filling the space and then look at how do we refill that space? How do we claim that space? We also, I think, need to think about how do we frame the space? And this comes to even the language of the pandemic the language of we need to isolate, we need to, um, and is it a language of isolation or is it a language of care? Um, the south of Ireland ha- talks about cocooning uh, those who are elderly or those who are particularly vulnerable or who have um, uh, a number of um, of comorbidities and who are at risk of um, 
of, of, of um, catching uh, the, the disease. And cocooning really has an extraordinary sort of um, image in it. That shield, that that shielding and cocooning is is keeping 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 safe, protecting as opposed to isolating. So our language matters uh, as well. And mm. I think this is this is micro in a microcosm. Palliative care has tried to sort of look at what's been filling the space and then look at how to reframe the space and then look at looking at how presence can um uh, spiritual presence uh, um, the sense of the presence of the other how that can actually provide um a, a, a positive peace within that space that can be very frightening and scary one of the wonderful things about the image of the cocoon uh, is that it's transformative. So not only are people kept safe, but they come out of it different. Yes. Beautifully transformed. Wouldn't it be wonderful to to bring more of that language and understanding? How could How do you think that can happen, that we can change our cultural language and therefore our cultural experience of this lockdown time? Even lockdown is quite a violent word, isn't it? It's like we've been locked up. Everyone, populations are being locked up by their governments for good reason. Of course, everyone understands that. Yeah. There's no, um, uh, there's no bad intention there at all. Um, but lockdown is quite a hard word, and it it, it makes me think about the the, the um, both the positive the positive and negative notions of the word cell and penitentiary. Uh, which come, which have religious roots, you know. You go to your cell in order to reflect <laughs> and be penitent, which which is a transformative thing. And for for convents and monasteries, that's a blessing. And for prisoners, it isn't, unless it's uh, it's meant to be. Though <laughs> it is meant to be uh, in in the original vision of it, it's it's meant to enable the personal transformation so that you can re-enter society. Um, yeah, I, so there's a there's a double edge to a lot of these words, and I I think you're hitting on something that's really valuable and essential is that um, how you know I suppose the question is how do we redeem the words that are in public domain that have been around um, our safety and protection but actually have. Yeah. Um, carry these under undertones and undercurrents that have frightened people, and and I, I don't have a good I don't have good answers or good ideas about how to redeem those words, other than I know that they need, like you say, they need to be redeemed because there's something um, wholesome in in talking about cocooning. There's something wholesome in changing that concept of lockdown to a concept of. Um, uh, being um being um together if you know sit together at home that that w yes. um yeah. uh, yes. concert had i think right. picked it correctly that sort of together at home because it it captured the idea that we we are all together as a world um mm. and yet the at home pieces where we're where we are are staying and it is and it does you know, I do have to say, and we know that home for home is not necessarily safe for everybody, and that is an issue. Um, yeah. um, but I, I think it's the the one image we can and the one message that we could hold on to with that caveat that um, uh, you know, with that recognition. 
and yeah. it, it's it's certainly easier than the the lockdown because there is that terrible sense of of a key is being turned and mm. you're out of control. We as as people mm. are out of control, and some someone somewhere has taken the control and is is clamping it. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And so re- rediscovering our agency in this, because it does rely on our agency. It relies on people going along with it because we can all see the purpose for it. Um, so if we can feel that in ourselves, it perhaps feels um, a better way of managing the fact that we need to have this uh, separation, the spatial gap between between us at the moment. And just looking ahead to coming out of this and the religions for peace, in the last few minutes, um, could you tell us a little bit about how faith leaders in that are viewing a post-COVID world and how we can prepare ourselves, what we can be doing now to um, make the best world that we can? Um, Yes, I think faith leaders have a, an extraordinary opportunity at the minute. Um, partly, in that we've already referenced this, this um, uh, sense of redeeming the words, redeeming the message, and taking forward a message of, of hope and mm-hmm. reconciliation. Um, mm-hmm. Faith leaders are very acutely aware of the um, the tensions that the pandemic has created, um, and it's strange that um, over the course of these few months, um, many the, the big religious festivals of Easter, of Passover, of um, we're in Ramadan at the minute. Those are um, times of coming together. Um, and faith leaders are very, very alert and aware that they're having to reframe uh, how their faith communities respond. It, 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 to, it respond both as as practitioners, both as 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 um, faithful pilgrims, um, trying to celebrate and retain the sort of the heart of their faith, and yet not being able to do. S- do so in the no, in the way that they have done in the past because of the pandemic, and what faith leaders are saying is that re um, that that ability to be flexible, that ability to to um, understand the power of faith doesn't go away when the systems mm. um, change. Um, in fact, if anything, it becomes stronger. Uh, is a way for the future that we can reframe and rearticulate some of the external workings of society and it's not going to um it destroy them it's not going to pull the the, the 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 blanket from out under in fact what it will do will be to um create an even stronger um society that comes together the other thing i should say is all faith leaders are talking about the importance of a new paradigm of health that recognises the power of nature, the, the recognises the world, uh, the living world and humanity in the world need to be understood together. And mm. that, that planetary yeah. health sense of the uh, the wholeness of um, our planet and the wholeness of our people need to be joined. That's one thing that the co- that the COVID um, pandemic is uh, 
hitting home so hard for us, isn't it? And I suppose we've we've been caught in a kind of climate anxiety uh, and what on earth can we can we do to change our ways? And now we're we're being made to change our ways, and uh, that that's um, opening our eyes more, not only to our very very intimate the inter- very very intimate connectedness of the whole planet and life on Earth, um, but also to what is possible actually. Yeah. Within within a very short space of time, nature is is being healed, isn't it? Yes, and I think that's what. Um... You know, that's the part that is um, so glorious, and that na- and that spring has continued, um, <laughs> even when we have um, yeah. felt that we are in the darkest of winter. Uh, our spring has kept kept going, and it's giving us <clears throat> that sense of rebirth and 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 hope. And actually, um, we know that uh, nature is so much more vibrant. The air is cleaner. Um, the the with the carbon emissions down, and it, it is extraordinary what has happened. Though, at the the price of what has of how it has happened, is challenging. Um, so we need to get to a way, and I think all faith leaders have talked about this as well. How do we get to a way where we retain um, the benefits, the the in sense the unintended consequences of the various mitigation strategies? How do we get to that way? Um, but in a way that's pro-poor, pro-the vulnerable, because those who have been most impacted by the um, these strategies have been the poor in every country, and we can see that. Um, so it 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 feels like um, what this pandemic has done is is to call us to think about balance in a in a new way. There's so many. Um, pieces that we're balancing on each side um, and we need to find a route through them that uh, allows us to retain our own mental balance ar- allows society to retain its balance and the balance and, and the balance that's actually understanding the equality of humanity as opposed to um, a, a balance that's tipping in favor um, of the rich um, of the successful which is which has been how society has been framed up till now. And especially uh, when you have long periods of peace, sadly, inequality seems to grow. And it's out of crises that we almost come back to ourselves. Mm, that's very profound. You know? yeah. yeah. So let's let's sort of hope for the best world we can make as we come th- as we endure and come through this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Liz, thanks so much. It's been um, so enlightening and heartening speaking to you because you, you're looking at um, some of the greatest uh, aspects of suffering through this pandemic and, and speaking with such wisdom and compassion about it. So thank you. Thank you. For the latest university COVID-19 advice and news, go to the University of Edinburgh website and you'll find all the links you need at the top of the homepage. If you would like to discuss any issues affecting you from this podcast or would like welfare support during lockdown, you can contact the university's listening service by emailing listening.service at ed.ac.uk. The listening service is run by the chaplaincy and is for all Edinburgh students and staff.